as always, I have my uh, co-host with me this evening, Francis Harry. Hello, Hi. Francis. How are you? Hi, I'm great, Mark. And you? I'm doing well. We uh, we always seem to talk about the weather, but today it's good news. We actually had a decent day here in the Dayton area, the Dayton uh, listening area for weather. Yeah, the sun uh, is shining. Yeah. And also the S-O-N is shining. We like yeah. that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's even more important. I agree. Well, I'm going to start off the, the program today with a challenge to our listeners. And that challenge is later in the program, not much later, by the way, just a few minutes in, we're going to talk a little bit about spiritual direction. And we're going to talk about experiences that uh, both Francis and I have had in spiritual direction, um, those uh, attributes of spiritual directors that are particularly useful. Why does someone seek out spiritual direction? And most importantly, what does St. Teresa of Avila tell us are the benefits of spiritual direction? Why should we seek spiritual direction? And when we get to that phase of the program, I want to invite our listeners, and that's why I'm introducing this now, to call in and offer their own perspectives. As we've said many times, and we certainly hear from many listeners, both uh, during the program, but more often than not, we hear afterwards in email and in, in a phone a conversation. And we'd like to try to get some of that dialogue on the radio, because I think it's very beneficial, Francis, for many of our listeners to hear the experiences of other individuals, Carmelite and other uh, spiritual uh, persuasions that have had experiences with spiritual direction, um, both good and bad, but we want to focus on the on the positive attributes of spiritual direction and the benefits of it. But Francis, I want to begin this uh, particular program this week with a bit of a recap from last week. Uh, as you indicated, we uh, not, not missed, but covered somewhat briskly some of the details. So uh, if you could, as we always do, would you lead us in prayer and then give us a quick uh, run through of the of the conversation that we had last week. Okay, I'm going to start with the prayer that Teresa Vavala prayed, and it's from the book of her life. Oh God, your goodness is infinite. I see clearly who you are and who I am. Oh joy of angels, when I contemplate that vast difference between us, I long to be wholly consumed with love for you. Life of all lives, you do not condemn those who trust in you and want you as a friend. Thus, you sustain the life of the body and give it its health along with the life of the soul. Amen. Amen. So, so again, a quick reminder, we are covering the interior castle, St. Teresa of Avila's, the interior castle. There are seven uh, dwelling uh, places in the castle. Last week, we attempted to cover the first three, uh, but I think spent most of our time finishing up in the second dwelling. And so, uh, Francis, if you would, just give us a quick recap of that so we can catch up our listeners who may be just joining us this week. Okay, the door to the first dwelling place is prayer and self-knowledge and humility. Of course, those two, we all, all, all those three, in fact, we need all along the way. But this is when people are first beginning to understand that God is out there watching over them, caring for them. And so... Uh, they're starting to be awakened to his love. And they're needing to be delivered from the evil, uh, the things that entice and distract them from uh, taking the time to search for this true light. So they're kind of vulnerable and weak. And they can't seem to slip free from these impediments, like, um, I would say, possessions or honor or business affairs. But they do have good desires, and they do pray some. Um, but they need this self-knowledge and humility, and they need, as Teresa pointed out, to know the beauty and dignity of their soul and also what the ugliness of a soul in sin is. And so she says, ask the Blessed Mother and the saints to intercede and to deliver them from all these attachments. And so as they grow in their self-knowledge, then they're going to seek more. And then that leads us to the door to the second dwelling place, and that is renunciation because you're going to renounce those things that you're attached to. And you're having an understanding of the desire now to grow in your spiritual life. And so you're asking the Lord to lead us not into temptation. You're wanting to go forward, and this is going to be uh, where you're going to practice more prayer, and there's going to be more purification. And um, you're a little bit more responsive to the promptings of grace through, like, books or sermons, Friendships and trials, 
and you're begging for God's help and his mercy. That's, that's huge right now because they're struggling with evil, and they must have determination to persevere because there are great temptations to go back because they're not very consistent. Um, that's one of their biggest weaknesses is being inconsistent. And so their goal is to try to be in union with God's will. And, of course, that's going to go throughout the whole spiritual journey. But at this time, the, uh, the trials can be worse than the first mansion because now they have more choice because they're starting to see better. So now they really have to make sure they don't put themselves in a position of being tempted. In difficult situations, right. And this idea of going back, this is something that Teresa stresses again and again. Not only the fact that it, it is a real temptation throughout the course of the development of our spiritual maturity, we will always be tempted to go back. We'll always face new trials. Uh, the enemy is ever looking for new ways to attack us. But she also stresses that as we get further along in our maturity, we're going to hear this tonight as we look into the third and the fourth wellings, the risks of going back become greater as well. And I, I've said this many times in, in uh, consulting with others that, you know, as you begin to develop a consistent prayer life and you're perhaps a daily communicant or you're more consistent with your uh, participation in the sacrament of reconciliation, confession, uh, the risk of turning back will increase, it will become uh, more difficult on you as you face new trials, but the risk of turning back is greater in the sense that the trials now will be more significant if you turn back. It's almost as though, you know, we've, we've developed some uh, insight, if you will, and, and uh, the enemy would love to capture those who have more knowledge, and so uh, the risks become greater, something she stresses to us continuously. And if he gets you now, he doesn't have to worry about you later. Yeah, so exactly. So we exactly. must have that determined determination to determined persevere. Determination, right, uh, a, a phrase that we believe she coined anyway, at least as regards to spiritual life. So very important. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, how you, you need the Eucharist more often now as you're starting to grow, because that is one of the things that is important about the third dwelling place or the third mansion. This is the mansion of the exemplary life. So these are, are staunch Catholics. They're model Christians. They're, um, they've got a lot of knowledge. They've gone to a lot of retreats. They've studied. They're praying. And, you know, there's a, a, a lot here. And one of them is that they really need to be sustained, you know. And so um, you're leading right into this next dwelling place beautifully. Well, let's talk about the third dwelling place or some of the... Um the elements of the third dwelling place. And again, I, I want to emphasize, I think we did last week, these are, Francis, as you were discussing before the program, they're a good framework, they're a good picture, they're a good map. They give us some guidance. And as we begin in the spiritual journey to experience some of the elements that this master of the spiritual life and of prayer um, has already lived and provided us the roadmap to, we can see how we are beginning to experience elements of it, and it's very good to know that someone has already charted that path. In the case of Teresa, it was as late as age 39 that she had what she called her own conversion and then went yet still through a number of trials, and she's given us that picture. The point I want to emphasize is this is not a rigid map. You don't need to try to peg yourself into a dwelling. In fact, she tells us we'll go back and forth in the dwellings. We'll experience certain things. Certainly, if we step back a little bit, we may have to restart some things. So, it's a very good picture, it's a very good roadmap, it's a very good framework, and it's very important in the spiritual life to have guides, because you will enter the unknown, you will enter things that don't seem consistent with your experience, and it's good to know that somebody can say to you, it's okay, keep going. Absolutely. Others have been this way. Absolutely. A lot of people make it to this third dwelling place with all, without all that help, but if you start going further into the fourth and the fifth, and certainly the 6th and 7th, you're going to need some good help uh, from somewhere, somehow. Well, you just brought up the point in your recap uh, of an um, aspect that carries over into the third dwelling, and it's very important for those individuals who, as you say, have begun to practice uh, some form of deliberate spirituality, maybe daily prayer, or daily uh, mass, and so forth, the elements of a, of a more mature spiritual life. And one of those is that we become somewhat protective of our uh, image, the image that we present to ourselves in our own mind, 
and the image that we think we are presenting to others within the church. We think now that we've taken on some level of responsibility that our works and our participation and our demeanor um, are, are in and of themselves a means of our attaining holiness. And Teresa says, whoa, 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 be careful. Don't become too attached to this image of yourself, to the works that you're performing in the church, because, she says to us, God does not need our works. What he needs is a determined will on our part, because he's going to begin slowly to dismantle some of those images that we've created of ourselves and that we think others have of us, because they're not really what he's asking us for. They're not the, 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 the person he's drawing us into, the experience he's drawing us into. Um, he's going to have to bring us through trials. He's going to have to remove some of those um, additional faces we may have put on that we think are important, that we think represent what good Christianity is, and he does that largely in the third dwelling. Well, these people are very organized, and they do, they long not to offend God. They're disciplined, and um, they try to be realistic and balanced, and they're pretty predictable because of how they want to grow in their holiness, and they think they see the path, and this is the, the way they're going. Um, but yet uh, there's a tendency to think only in the way of your cognitive senses here. And therefore, as you start to grow and God is trying to pull you to a higher degree of prayer, then you're, you're going to be set off guard here, and your self-sufficient stuff is going to be awakened and, and exploded in, in a sense that God is saying, no, you don't depend on yourself here. You've got to depend on me. I'm the one. So this importance of self-knowledge, and we will uh, a manifestation of this specifically, is that we will have those moments when things are revealed to us about our own weakness. We may, for example, be accused of something uh, that that uh, you know minor in and of itself, but we'll find ourselves becoming particularly defensive. You know, and this is likely in Christian circles, not not Absolutely. necessarily in the secular circles of our life, but in Christian circles, we'll find ourselves becoming defensive. And then we'll read something, or we'll hear a sermon, and we'll know, I am defending myself. I am trying to hide behind that image. I, I, I was secure in the perspective that I either had of myself or that I believed others had of me. And now that's being shattered a little bit, and I've got to face that. This is that difficult piece that we talked about last week. And people in this dwelling will inevitably struggle through that phase of believing. And in fact, the question that will come into your mind Mm, okay. uh, as as uh, evidence of what this uh, experience is like, you'll say to yourself something like, well, how can God use me now? Look at the mistake I've made. Look at the fault. Look at how people must perceive me in the church, because they now know that I'm defensive on that issue, or I'm overly sensitive on that issue. You hope, by the way, that you have that depth of self-knowledge, that you can ask yourself that question. But inevitably, you'll turn to the experience of what others think about you and you'll find yourself saying, well, now God can't work with me because I don't have that image anymore. Hmm, that's quite interesting. So what happens next? The next thing that happens is prayer. <laughs> <laughs> and humility, because no matter yes. what happens, and we'll say this again and again as we go through the seven dwellings, you can't give up, you can't back up, you can't say, well, it's over now. God obviously isn't working in me, through me, or with me, and so I've got to abandon this prayer stuff and and spirituality and go back to something else. And that kind of thought would also limit God's action. And, and of course, we know God's actions are, are not limited, and so uh, we've got to get past that. But, you know, this mansion here is very interesting. Um, I read an author, uh, her name is Carolyn Humphreys, in a book called From Ash to Fire. And she called this mansion the mansion of the Great Divide. And it was the pioneers versus the settlers. And I'm like, what in the world is she talking about, pioneers and settlers? And then I read what she wrote, and she's basically saying there are those who are going to forge ahead, and they know there are trials and tribulations, aridity being a big one, which we should probably mention um, more in depth. But um, they're, they're going to forge ahead and, and go. But then there's the people who are, are going to settle here because, you know, they're, they don't have any more adventuresome spirit. They're very comfortable. Um, let me give you some titles of some rooms that you might find in this dwelling place. Because remember, Teresa said there are rooms above, uh, to the back, to the forward, everywhere. So here are some rooms that you might find in this third dwelling place. 
Okay, so here are some of those rooms. I know you've been eagerly waiting, right? <laughs> okay, here they are. The Palace of the Perfect Persons, the Courtyards of Complacency, the Workaholic Ward, because we're doing, doing, we're so busy doing works for the God. We're doing works for God, so we must be doing the right thing. Efficiency Experts, the Palace of Predictability, the Garden of the Pleasant Rut or Merry-Go-Round, um, the Room of Rules. You know, if you follow all these rules, you will be holy. Or, or the weeping willows, those chronic complainers, you know, how things always are not good enough. The staunch Catholics, the defenders of the faith, are the pedestal dwellers. You know, you can just imagine them strong and rigid. And, you know, if we get rigid in our spiritual life, we're losing a lot. And then there are the worry warts or the shrinking violets. And this is a big one. I think a lot of us go through this one, this room, the spiritual bargain bin. And that's where you're like, okay, if I do this and this and this for you, Lord, then you'll grant my, you know, prayer request, right? Yeah, those those are great examples, and you're right. These are all of the sort of mental mind games that we'll play with ourselves. Sometimes the enemy will engage us in, but we'll go back and forth in these thought patterns, and that's a great one. Of, But I fulfilled the rules. I played by, you know, the rules that were established. I was supposed to do this, and you were going to do that. And God says, I don't play by those rules. Right. Let me let me show you a different way. And then so. when he lamblasts you with that aridity and prayer mark, then what? that's a proving ground. How do you think we should respond to that dryness and aridity in prayer? Well, of course, as uh, Teresa tells us, when we experience uh, difficulty in prayer, and we may have slowed down or we may have stopped altogether. We talked about this last week. Um, we have to do a couple of things. One, we have to remind ourselves that God is not asking us to do great things. He's not asking us or ex- uh, we should not be expecting necessarily consistently to be experiencing great things in prayer. But here we have to be humble and we have to persevere. And we have to know these times are coming. This is, I think, the importance of this teaching is recognize, listeners, we encourage you, recognize if you've reached a dry spot in your prayer, there are two things going on. One, it's dry, and two, you're praying. The fact that you're praying is what allowed you to experience the dryness, but you're praying. You're in the fight. You're continuing. And we need to stop convincing ourselves, or at least telling ourselves if we're not buying it, that the effects of prayer or the manifestations that come about in prayer or the results of prayer are somehow dependent largely on ourselves. They are not. They are dependent upon God. We dispose ourselves in prayer. We put ourselves before our Lord and our Master. We make ourselves available. That's what's happening in prayer. That's what we're looking for in prayer, is to put ourselves in front of the King and let the King do the work, let the Holy Spirit do the work. Teresa is going to give us some insight on just how beautiful that can be as early as the fourth dwelling, but that's the, the, the important lesson that we have to learn from the dryness that we might experience in prayer. Right, and this is an opportunity for us to risk that, um, you know, we we are spiritually vulnerable, um, and we need to be more sensitive and, you know, spontaneous to how God's working with us, and trust that, you know, despite it being arid and dry, we're going to be committed, committed to this relationship, just like you would if you were dating somebody and you hit a little hard spot, but you still like the person, so you're going to drive through that hard spot just because, you know, of your care for this person. Now, we know God loves us dearly, so what he has planned for us is to try to detach us from these feel-goods and these being-in-control moments to help us surrender to him. Because what better hands would we be in if we would just let ourselves be in his? Right, and the great risk, of course, as we said, is, we can begin to define the relationship. We can begin to define what holiness ought to look like. We determine the works, which in and of themselves present the risk of spiritual pride if we get wrapped up in oh, our absolutely. works and we think that we've uh, somehow earned uh, the, the, the responses that we're either getting or perhaps not getting in prayer. But in order to stay on this course, in order to have this guidance, in order to uh, have someone there to give you some insight, you have, of course, a couple of options, and we don't want to minimize the importance of reading and listening to Carmelite conversations, both very beneficial ways of doing that. Excellent. But a, but a third way, clearly, is through spiritual direction. And, and certainly, Teresa strongly advocates that anybody who 
has begun to develop a more mature spiritual life. Has, as, as I said earlier, some examples of that, uh, more frequent communion, a consistent uh, participation in the sacrament of reconciliation. Consistent prayer certainly is a, is a minimum expectation. Absolutely. Uh, the reading. When you've begun to do that and you've begun to experience some of these things, it may be time to seek a, a formal uh, spiritual guide or spiritual direction. And there are a few attributes, uh, benefits, certainly, that we draw from. Uh, there are benefits and there are attributes of spiritual direction that we look for, and Teresa's uh, uh, given us some of that. I, uh, at this point, I really do want to encourage our listeners, however, because we know there's a wealth of experience out there about spiritual direction, most especially because people have lived through it, and there are, there are benefits that people have received. There are characteristics of spiritual directors you found particularly useful, and we'd love to hear from you on that, either now or or even as we come back from the break, think about it as, as those ideas come into your head. We, we would very much value that insight. Again, the number, uh, if you want to participate in the conversation, is 1-866-333-6279. Now, Teresa says here, uh, Francis, that some of the things that we benefit from in spiritual direction is someone to be obedient to. Uh, someone that will give us that guidance and direction and steer us either towards certain pieces of literature or away from other pieces of literature. They'll help us uh, in certain phases of prayer. They might be able to reflect back our experience of dryness or, uh, in some cases, desolation if we're experiencing that, and tell us it's okay. Others have gone down this path. What else do we look for, though, in spiritual direction? What other benefits can we expect to reap in spiritual direction? Well, I, I think it's good to have a, a spiritual friendship. So a spiritual director is a companion on your journey. So they're not here to say, I know the way. They're here to tell you where they think God is showing you the way. Because each person has a unique way to go, because we're all unique people. And that's the beauty, that God treats us uniquely. And so I think it's very important to find someone who um, is knowledgeable and experienced and does pray, but who is willing to, you know, uh, be that companion on the journey. What do you look for, Mark? Well, some of the best spiritual advice that I've ever received, one one uh, point in particular was from a spiritual director who said to me, actually, um, there are no spiritual directors, per se, outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate spiritual director. What a spiritual director can help you do is discern where Christ may be calling you, where he may be leading you, how the experiences you're going through are, in fact, consistent with the path. Because that's the greatest challenge, is we'll start to convince ourselves, I must be off the path. I must have taken a wrong turn. I've got to go back. Or worse yet, we'll say to ourselves, I've got to stop. Yeah, that's Clearly, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. Uh, something Teresa did herself. It's a trap she fell into. And unfortunately, in Teresa's case, I think it's why she's so adamant about um, the, the value of good spiritual direction is that she received some poor spiritual direction along the way and was only later able to discern uh, that the advice she was given was not, if not uh, detrimental, certainly wasn't leading her forward. And spiritual direction should lead us forward. And, of course, the best way of leading us forward is to continually um, advocate uh, a prayer life and also help us to, to realize this is not unique. Your circumstance is not entirely unique. The, the experiences you're going through are not um, just for you. Others have trod this path, and, and they can give you guidance and counsel. Well, we're going to take a break at this point, and when we come back, we're going to look forward to your calls on your experiences in spiritual direction. And we're also going to get into the fourth dwelling and talk a little bit about uh, what Teresa has to teach us about the benefits we can expect to experience along this path. Please join
Well, welcome back, listeners. And as we get into the fourth dwelling here now, Francis, we're going to need good spiritual direction because this is where things speed up a little bit and the challenge has become uh, even more uh, significant for those who have uh, begun a more formal prayer life and have really begun to uh, pursue holiness. And here, Teresa talks about this clear distinction between uh, two aspects in the spiritual life. One is consolations. Right. And the other is spiritual delights. And she makes a uh, very uh, almost dogmatic point of distinguishing these two because she thinks it's so important as regards our progress in going forward. Let's talk a little bit first about consolation. Share with us the the uh, aspects of consolation in prayer. What is, what is consolation? Well, consolation means that, that we're getting some kind of feeling from the kind of prayer that we're doing uh, We start with our faculties, our memory, our intellect, and will, and we're thinking about maybe the passion, and maybe we might get a a little bit um, uh, sensitive or sentimental um, or or really contrite in our heart for the sin that we're we're seeing being caused, uh, causing, you know, all these wounds of Jesus. And, but this is something that we create. We can work ourselves up into this kind of, um, uh, we can actually have tears. There can can be uh, some happiness here. We're, we're, maybe we've done a, uh, something for the church, and it's gone really well, and we're really happy about it. So we put some effort into it. And so now we're having the consolation, the result of these good efforts. And so they start with us, but they end in praising God. So for His glory. Yeah, they're a good thing. There's nothing wrong with them. There may be an emotional manifestation. As you said, we may actually... Uh, be brought to tears over the thought of the crucifixion, or there may be great joy, great peace at the realization that God saves us, uh, that our life is in His hands. There may be a great reaction to that, and we may feel a physical reaction of peace in our body, of joy, Uh, but as you say, we are using our faculties, we are using discursive, meditative prayer, the the, um, abilities of the imagination, the human imagination, not not necessarily intent on creating something, but there may be a manifestation as a result of that. Right. right? I know Teresa mentions that, like, nosebleeds would be an example, but I really didn't get that one. So if any of you listeners understand that, you let me know. I want some information on that one. Uh, but she also said we could get worked up into, you know, being trembly. You know, so you might find that um, in prayer circles where people can work themselves up into kind of a little bit of a frenzy. And what happens it is it constricts their heart, and they can end up maybe getting a headache because, you know, they poured this stuff out so much or they've worked themselves up and the stress or the tension grows so much that in this sense it's constricting. Constricting because it's largely centered in ourselves. We, we are engaging actively in the, the act of prayer, and that's a good thing. There's benefit to be derived from that. But as you say, Teresa cautions, it's more likely to be constricting to the heart than it is opening or releasing the heart. So then let's talk about spiritual delights. Yeah, you start on that okay. one. Okay. Well, spiritual delights start in God. That's the fundamental difference. They begin in God, and they are nothing that we can create. They are simply an experience that we have of God's love, of His mercy, of His grace. We can't create them, and they are given to our spirit. These aren't things we will feel in the emotional sense of uh, the consolations, though they may flow over, as we'll talk about in a minute, in the analogy she uses with the water and the aqueduct. They may well flow over into a physical manifestation, but they start first in what she later says. She initially says it's in the heart and that they have the capacity. This is the last distinguishing element of them. They have the capacity of enlarging the heart. And, and before our listeners uh, perhaps uh, struggle with that description, Teresa says very clearly, you will know when this happens. You will not be confused. When you experience this, you will know that, in fact, it is God working in you. But she later in the writing says, I said earlier that it was the heart, but really I now want to say it's the very center of the soul. The very center of the soul experiences this this touch of God, if you will, and the spiritual delight is much more uh, significant for her, spiritually certainly, than the consolation that came as a result of prayer. 
Right. She she uses this Psalm 119, verse 32. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Yeah, Teresa loves to uh, draw, as as all the uh, great spiritual uh, guides, uh, both of Carmel and other uh, devotions do, love to draw on the Psalms. The Psalms are so powerful. And we've said this before, uh, the, the significance of poetry, and most especially of the Psalms, David wrote the Psalms from his heart. They end up in the written word, but we try to re-enter those Psalms, re-enter that word, so that we can enter the heart. The human experience is consistent with what David uh, went through, so the Psalms are very important in that regard. Uh, A little bit later on in in this fourth dwelling, uh, Teresa talks about this idea of the tears, and you said a moment ago, uh, the tears, uh, I would characterize them as a gift. They may come as a result of meditation on uh, the crucifixion, or a result of a meditation on our own sinfulness, our own wretchedness, our own weakness in those areas where we have failed our Lord. And again, there may be an emotional reaction here, but there's also a healing that's going on as a result of this, isn't it? Yes. Love is going to manifest itself here. And she has a great description um, in this uh, particular dwelling area of love. She, she preempts this with a, a discussion about the importance of it, then she goes on to say this, um, so, so do what best stirs you to love, she says. Perhaps we don't know what love is, which is a significant thing, I think, for a saint to say. And, of course, now, now she's uh, going to define it, for so our benefit, take notes. she's going to answer it. Exactly. We have a somewhat, uh, in many cases, unfortunately, we have a somewhat tainted version. John of the Cross describes our, our view many times of love as a tainted version of love. And he's not trying to be demeaning. He's not trying to use it as a put-down. He just says, we don't know the depth of it. We don't know the beauty of it. We've misunderstood it. Teresa is going to help us a little bit. I wouldn't be very surprised because it doesn't consist in great delight, but in desiring with strong determination to please God in everything. Now, I don't think, Francis, in all fairness, <clears throat> that that's necessarily inconsistent with what many um, let me just characterize it as young people for the moment. What many young people experience in their first, um, you know, waves of love when they begin to enter into relationship with with another person, and they have those, um, you know, emotions and those feelings and those thoughts. Don't we have that experience of wanting to please that other person? This is somewhat different, but nonetheless, don't we have that experience of wanting to please another person as an act of love? Absolutely. Just think of the dating scene. It's right there. We've got a a very valid example there. Well, and she goes a little further now because we are talking about God, and so she says, in striving insofar as possible not to offend him, not to offend God, and asking him for the advancement of the honor and glory of his Son, and in the increase of the Church. These are the signs of love. Now, this is Teresa Vavala, doctor of the Church, a master of prayer, and she's being very succinct and very deliberate here. She says, these are the signs of love. If you were confused about it before, let me make it clear. These are the signs of love. They are not limited to those emotions that you may experience in that first wave of love as a young person. They're not limited to uh, the thoughts of the one that you uh, have affection for constantly rolling around in your mind, but it is this desire to do God's will, to please God, to never offend Him, uh, to be fearful, in fact, of offending Him, which is the correct definition of fear of God, and also this desire for the honor and the glory of His Son. Right, and here she also counsels us not to be thinking so much, not to think much, but love much. It all boils down to love, doesn't it? It absolutely does, and in fact, that was a great segue without even my prompting you <laughs> to take us into this next section where she talks about this idea of our thoughts, because clearly, as we've just discussed, in consolation, we're going to have thoughts, we're going to have emotions, um, in spiritual delights, which came from God, which got to the center of our soul. We didn't do anything about that, but she wants to take us back for a moment and say, now wait, don't don't minimize this importance of discursive meditation, of reflecting on Christ, but she says there's a little risk here, and the risk is that sometimes our thoughts can run away with us, and Don't we, we can know be it. drawn off. Tell us a little bit, Francis, about what she has to say about this, because I think many people struggle with this issue in prayer. Well, I'm not sure where you were going with that. Why don't you answer <laughs> <laughs> all the of a sudden? I, I don't have a thought in my head. <laughs> now you, I know you're doing that just to tease me. 
this wandering imagination, Francis, the idea of the wandering imagination, which she distinguishes from the intellect. So what, what uh, Teresa is telling us, because Francis won't, <laughs> is this idea... I was wandering, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. That in prayer, our thoughts can sometimes run away. We may begin with discursive meditation on Christ in the Gospel, and then we'll think about Christ in the desert, and the next thing we know, we're thinking about the grass that hasn't been cut, and or the, dinner, the, uh, the, or the, the dinner that's burning on the, or the business issue that we have. Or, yeah, I know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So I brought your imagination back to the point. Do you want to pick it up, or do you want me to continue? Oh, you just okay. keep going. <laughs> All right. She distinguishes the imagination here. The imagination for her is that runaway train, which we've heard it described as that runaway. A series of thoughts, and I've heard so many people say to me, well, I try to get quiet, and I try to enter silence, and I, I try to meditate, but, you know, my mind is a runaway train. Yeah, wild well, horses there. Yeah, exactly, taking us away. Oh, let, me, let me go back and, again, invite all of our listeners, uh, uh, no doubt, either in spiritual direction or in their own efforts at prayer and, and seeking guidance from spiritual direction, uh, our listeners have gone through some of this. And I want to encourage you listeners to please share those thoughts and those experiences with us. Again, that number, one eight six six three 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 six two seven nine. That was one eight six six three 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 six two seven nine. Somebody has to call in and help me control Francis's wild imagination. <laughs> yes, but you know what? She tells us we're not supposed to be disturbed by that. You know, so even though I can be really wild in my prayer and here on this program, <laughs> um, we're not supposed to be concerned about that because the bottom line is our will to be loving, right? Am I on the right track here? You're absolutely on the right track. And again, she distinguishes between this idea of the imagination and the intellect. Now, for her, the intellect meant something different than what we might customarily think of it. But for her, the intellect is deep within the soul. It's the highest part of the soul much like St. Thomas of Aquinas would have taught. Uh, and she says, that can still remain. But she cautions us before she goes on. She says something very dramatic here, I think. She says, great danger can be done. I'm not quoting directly, although I have the text in front of me, but she says, terrible trials, now I am quoting directly, are suffered because we don't understand ourselves. This is a critical point, and it's one of those benefits that we, we would certainly hope to draw out from spiritual direction. We may be one of those people with the wild horses and the runaway train and the imagination. And we may think, well, I just don't have a predisposition to prayer. I can't be a contemplative. I can't be a silent person. Well, Teresa of Avila, a doctor of the Church and one of the greatest teachers on prayer, had that very same runaway mind, and she discovered that it was part and parcel of her human experience and was not something that she was in any way limited in her prayer life because of. And, in fact, she came to understand that she could let those horses run to some extent because deep within the soul, she was, in fact, communing with God. And here's where she says, quote, For all this turmoil in my head doesn't hinder prayer or what I am saying, but the soul is completely taken up in its quiet love, desires, and clear knowledge. Yeah, terrific, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what we again, we have to go back to what she said. If we're working through consolation, if we're doing the work and we're discursively meditating and we're actively engaging the emotion and so on and so forth, we may become more subject to these aspects of our prayer. But we have to recognize we are not the ones doing the work in prayer. We are disposing ourselves. We are presenting ourselves. We are standing before our Lord and Master, and He is the one who is ultimately doing the work. And he draws us into that experience, and even though we may be mildly or significantly distracted, we don't need to be concerned about it. We can still enter a silent mode of prayer. She also tells us, however, that uh, the devil may get involved in this in some way, but she tells us uh, that there's a consolation there as well. If the devil causes them these distractions, they will cease with suspension when she gets into this deeper form of prayer. If they come, as they often do, from one of the many uh, miseries inherited from sin, from Adam, then let us just be patient and endure them for the love of God. For since we are likewise subject to eating and sleeping without being able to avoid it, a consequence of our human experience, these two will go. It's a trial, but eventually these will go. Perseverance, determined determination. Everything that we might present as a challenge in prayer, Teresa comes back to these 
guiding principles, humility, perseverance, determination, self-knowledge, keep going. Right, and here we're going to start to experience a difference in our prayer. This fourth dwelling place um, is really the entrance, the drawbridge or, or the bridge over or the elevator up to the supernatural life or the mystical life. And so prayer is going to change here. And because um, we may not understand it, then we may think we're regressing. When in actuality, God is preparing us to go by the way that we do not know. You know, uh, uh, God is not limited by our perception. And so he's going to bust our perception. And sometimes we're not ready for that. So we have to be willing and adventurous enough and courageous enough to go forward. Well, and Teresa is going to talk to us in just a moment about the prayer choir. We're going to draw that out of her writing. But before she does that, she goes back into this discussion about the prayer of recollection, a prayer we've talked about many times, so we don't need to reiterate. Other than uh, it's drawing within. It's that drawing within. But this time in the interior castle, Teresa gives us some guidance. She gives us some direction here. And she says there are one of two ways, methods, if you will, Teresa's not big on method. She's big on love, right? Right. But here she's going to give us a method. She says there are one or two ways that you can enter into this. The first is through consistent, um, uh, reflective, uh, meditative recitation of vocal prayer. And she recommends either the Hail Mary or the Our Father. Now, many people know you can also use the Jesus Prayer uh, from the Eastern Church. It's more, more prominent in the Eastern Church. Uh, but but any one of the three is perfectly valid. I have a predisposition myself to the Hail Mary uh, because of our association with our Blessed Mother and also in this month of May, something we want to advocate. But uh, any one of the prayers will do. The point is slow, meditative, reflective, consistent, continuous repetition fashions the mind. We think that we're limited to the experience that we're having in our bodies or in our thoughts when in fact, as we just said, the soul is communing with God. We're trying to quiet all of that external stuff in this consistent, repetitive uh, recitation of these simple prayers, simple but profound prayers, which are, of course, found in the rosary. They make up the rosary, allows us to enter in. That's the first method that she proposes. The second is going back to what she had suggested a little bit earlier, and that's presenting Christ to ourselves in the Gospels and the images in the Gospels, the stories, drawing those images and the, the use of the imagination. But she puts a twist on it here. <laughs> she says, we must be present. You know, we teach, and we're going to teach Francis later in this uh, series of programs on the practice of the presence of God, Brother Lawrence uh, uh, of the Resurrection, who is the great proponent of the practice of the presence of God. And what Brother Lawrence tells us is exactly what Teresa is telling us here. Making God present to yourself is only part of the equation. The other part is you must be present to God. You must show up. It's not just a matter of creating an image in your mind or drawing uh, pictures or even thinking about the temperatures or the sand blowing or whatever uh, creative ability you have to present Christ in that image. It's you being fully present, you drawing in, as you said a moment ago, in recollection. Very good all point. Of the faculty. Very good point, because this is relationship. And if we're just being an outsider peering in, that's not the relationship God's calling us to. Right, exactly. Well, she's going to... I want to read from um, her text on uh, this uh, next phase, the prayer of quiet, what she had used in the way, uh, her her, uh, way of perfection, as the definition of the prayer of quiet. But before we do that, I just want to draw real quickly this analogy she uses of water. Now, she used a slightly different analogy in the way of perfection. But again, this is 15 years later, she's writing the interior castles. And so she says herself, my memory may have faded a bit, or I may have changed my my perspective somewhat on this. So I'm going to use a more simple analogy. And the analogy she uses is there are one of two ways to get the water to its destination. She says, you could use a lot of work in a series of aqueducts. And this, she says, is representative of that consolation that we talked about before, right? Mm-hmm. The water is streaming through a number of, uh, of avenues. We are using our mind. We are closing our eyes. We're thinking. We're trying to practice quiet. We're all trying good. To, all good. Yeah, all very beneficial. And eventually the water shows up, and that's a wonderful thing. The second option, though, on the water, she says, is uh, 
the water stems immediately from the source. This is the spiritual delight that she talked about earlier. Yeah, that spring. Reminds me of the spring yeah. in Bernadette and Lourdes, you know, those miraculous springs that come up. Um, and here is this water. is another analogy for the prayer that is right. being poured out within us. Right. It's exactly what she says, in fact. And she wants to emphasize this point, which is why she uses this analogy of the water. She says, we think sometimes, and I could have even led our listeners a moment ago to this, perception that it's something without that's coming to us, that God is coming to us and he's reaching into the soul and he's enlightening us or he's warming us or he's giving us this experience. The fact of the matter is, Teresa says, that well, that source, that spring is deep within you. You In the don't soul. need to go outside. Right, in that deep interior where, where we're trying to journey to, that center point, that seventh dwelling place. Yeah, she, she's very adamant about making the point that we don't need to go seeking these experiences without. And in fact, she says, that's somewhat what leads us into this trap of thinking that prayer and the manifestation of prayer and the, the outcome of prayer or the benefit of prayer is largely dependent on us. Yes. It's not. No, at this point, we're really trying to, we should be trying to let go and let God. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm going to test you, Francis. You get to turn it back on me if you uh, if you're uh, uh, you know caught off guard by it. But um, she gives us one example. She says uh, of these experiences, spiritual delight and so forth. She says these are not these experiences in and of themselves are not the confirmation, if you will, that prayer is progressing. They are not uh, what you are seeking. They are wonderful. They're gifts, and they should be accepted, and we should move on. But What's the greatest manifestation, confirmation, that in fact our prayer life is effective and it's beginning to have an impact on us? How it plays out in your life. How it plays out in your life. And that's in the deeds that follow the prayer, the patience, the compassion, the kindness, gentleness, in all the ways that we model the love of our life, Jesus Christ. Exactly, exactly. Teresa says, don't look for these experiences. They're wonderful, but they're not the confirmation. If you have those experiences and then you go out and fight with your brothers and sisters or you find yourself, again, continuing to dodge those challenges that we meet in everyday life, then prayer isn't yet manifesting itself. I want to talk just quickly about her prayer of quiet because she has such beautiful writing on this in terms of uh, helping us understand what it is that we're going towards. She says here, it seems that since that heavenly water begins to rise from this spring, I'm mentioning that is deep within us, and she says, it swells and expands our whole interior being, producing ineffable blessing. Nor does the soul even understand what is given to it there. It perceives a fragrance, let us say for now, as though they were in that interior depth of brazier giving off sweet-smelling perfumes. No light is seen, nor is the place seen where the water is coming from, but the warmth and the fragrant fumes spread the entire soul. Now, there's no real heat here, nope. no real scent, but she's using this as an analogy to try to explain what this is. Right. I, and that's exactly what she says. And then she goes on and says, And let persons who have not experienced these things, listeners, listen at this moment. And let persons, she says, who have not experienced these things, understand that truthfully they do happen. Again, this is Mother Teresa, somebody who would know. Let that that they do happen and are felt in this way and that the soul understands them in a manner clearer than is in my explanation to you now. This spiritual delight is not something that can be imagined. And we're going to have to talk more about this next week, or in two weeks. Next week you have a special guest, right? Next week uh, we are going to have a guest who is going to, uh, Michael Duracy actually, who's uh, um, got his licentia in sacred theology, did his work on uh, Marion Films, and he's going to take us through a, um, a, a montage, if you will, of, of Marion Films and how she's been represented uh, throughout the years in, in films. And this is a, a, a special gift for our listeners for the month of May, obviously, where we're celebrating our Blessed Mother. And then we'll come back to uh, finish the fourth and go into the fifth mansion. Uh, we'll finish the uh, fourth very quickly, mm-hmm. and we'll go into fifth and sixth, and then uh, the last week of May we'll do the seventh mansion. Okay. Well, let's close with a prayer. This is from uh, Teresa of Avila. Whoever truly loves you, good Lord, walks in the safety down a royal road, far from the dangerous abyss, as, and as 
so much as stumbles, you, O Lord, stretch out your hand. Not one fall or many will cause you to abandon him. If he loves you and does not love the things of this world, because he walks under the veil of humility. Well, I want to thank our listeners again for uh, joining us this week on Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll look forward to having you join us again next week when we'll be doing a special on Mary in film. God bless you all.